Hi everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Paul Gamble, founder and CEO at Nori. Now before we get into Nori, let's zoom out for just a second. We all understand the threat that climate change presents. And since the Industrial Revolution, we've been emitting tons and tons of carbon that puts us in a collision course with a lot of bad things like extreme weather, food shortages, social unrest, the list goes on. So to avoid this type of future, we need to radically reduce our carbon emissions and on top of that, remove the excess carbon that's already in our atmosphere. And Nori enables just that. Nori is one of the first marketplaces that allows anyone in the world to pay to remove excess carbon dioxide from our atmosphere. So in the episode, Paul and I will discuss how we're actually able to remove carbon from the atmosphere and why it's so important. The notion of regenerative agriculture and why it's so core to the Nori marketplace. Milestone announcements that recently came out of BlackRock, Microsoft, and big time industry. And how Paul intends to make Nori a generational company. So without further ado, I hope you learn a lot from our conversation with Paul Gamble, founder and CEO at Nori. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Peter. So, Paul, let's jump right in. What is Nori? <laughs> well, Nori is a carbon removal marketplace. So we are building the financial infrastructure that makes it possible for the world to reverse climate change by drawing down enough CO2 that's already been emitted into the atmosphere in order to restore the atmospheric carbon content back to 300 parts per million, which is where it was before the Industrial Revolution began. And just for the layperson, because we hear this notion of removing carbon from the air, sequestration, but for the layperson... Can you help demystify what it means to remove carbon dioxide from the air and why that's important? Yeah. So like, let's back up and talk about what the greenhouse effect really is and what's causing climate change, which is we've been moving carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases that have historically been located in underground reservoirs in the form of fossil fuels. And we've been burning those and releasing them into the atmosphere. And so the problem is that carbon dioxide is in the wrong location. That's it. This is just like climate change is really just an engineering problem. We need to move the greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere and put them back into the earth. So when we talk about carbon removal, what we're talking about are the many different methods, which are both ecological and industrial in nature, to remove the CO2, pull it out of the air, separate it from the other gases and store it somehow safely, whether that's in soils or underground rock formations, or even building manufactured products out of CO2. And just to visualize what some of those techniques or processes look like, what does it entail to remove carbon dioxide from the air what are examples of some of those technologies or projects that then that enable that to happen? On the ecological side, the the biggest one is most people guess planting trees, but actually the biggest one is in agriculture. So it turns out that actually uh, not just burning fossil fuels has put CO two in the air, but uh, large scale conventional agriculture is an enormous source. It's something like fifteen percent of all emissions worldwide. So what 
what happens in agriculture is in, in when I say conventional, I'm using air quotes here because this is really what we've been doing like since World War II is we plow the land at the beginning of the season and then we plant crops with a lot of fertilizer and then we harvest the crops at the end of the season and then we just leave the fields fallow throughout the winter. And there's a lot of organic matter in soil, like microbes and fungi and worms and nematodes and all sorts of other little stuff. And when we plow the land and turn over that soil, we're exposing all that organic matter to the air where it dies off. And by leaving the fields fallow throughout the winter, we're not providing nutrients to those microbes, and so they're continuing to die off. So this is called topsoil erosion. So you might have heard about that uh, as a kind of a separate issue. And that, that organic matter is the carbon. So that's one way through agriculture, and that's actually what we're focusing on initially at Nori. Other methods in the ecological sector would be, of course, planting trees, but also using kelp or seaweed macroalgae, which is pretty easy to grow and can sequester a lot of carbon. There are kind of hybrid approaches like managing mine tailings. So in certain types of mines where they're they're extracting ore and then they're separating the ore from the other like rocks and dirt and stuff, that leftover rocks and dirt and stuff are called tailings. And depending on the type of mine, like platinum is a good use case for this. They can actually use those, spread them out, and they'll passively absorb CO2 from uh, the atmosphere. And then there are more industrial approaches, things like a direct air capture, which is building large-scale machinery, pulling in air, separating the CO2 from the other gases through either um, through some sort of like chemical or electrolysis process. And then having that pure CO2, which you could then use to manufacture products. Like for instance, there are companies that can make medical grade plastics out of this. There have been companies that have been looking at how to embed it in other types of materials that they make. And then there are probably other different types out there that haven't even been invented yet because we haven't put enough financial resources into research and development on different types of carbon removal. So that's that's kind of the larger scale problem that we're trying to solve, which is create the financial incentive for people to do this. The idea is if people can make money off of reversing climate change, then we will reverse climate change because that's what drives our economy. That is fascinating. And thanks for breaking down kind of the landscape of what's available. I think far too often uh, the assumption in popular media is that people understand what it means to sequester carbon or remove it from the air. But really, it's a kind of highly complicated statement that has a cascade of possibilities and different ways to kind of execute against that exercise. So thank you for that. I want to unpack what you just said about financial incentives, because if anyone listening goes to nori.com, N-O-R-I.com, you can see there's a very simple kind of input for you as an individual, as a company or a family to say, all right, this is my footprint and very easily pay for that footprint. So let's dive into the Nori marketplace a little bit. And as I understand, there's three core pieces, right? The suppliers, the buyers, and the verifiers. Can you just briefly describe what are these key players and how do they enable the Nori marketplace? Yeah, let's talk about it in terms of like the life cycle of the carbon itself. So first step is that farmers adopt the practices that pull carbon out of the air. 
that I mentioned earlier is part of regenerative agriculture. And then they have to provide operating data to us. That's how we quantify the amount of carbon that they're storing in their soils. And then once we know the amount, then the farmers have to get that data verified by an independent third party who we accredit. So that verifier is looking at the data that they provided to ensure that what they're telling us is what actually happened on their land. This is data like what they planted, what type of crop, how much fertilizer they used, when they irrigated, where exactly the field is located, that sort of thing. And then once it's verified, we issue what we call Nori Carbon Removal Tons, or NRTs for short. We call them NERTs. So we issue NERTs to the farmer, and then the farmer can sell those through our marketplace. So they sell them to buyers. And buyers could be, as you mentioned, individuals or businesses, or there could even be businesses that are kind of passing them off to their own customers, but we can talk about that later. So the farmer sells the NERTs the carbon itself to the buyer and then the buyer owns it and it becomes immediately retired which is carbon market language that just means that it can never be resold so once the buyer owns it they own it forever that's in contrast to existing carbon offsets what nori is doing is not carbon offsets so the difference is that these are carbon removals most carbon offsets that you have heard about or seen are almost entirely carbon avoidance, meaning that they're doing some sort of project that is promising that because of this project, there are fewer future emissions that are going to go into the air. What Nori is doing is removing past emissions that are already up in the air. And this is a sector that has not seen much attention or focus over the last few decades, and that's why we're doing this exclusively. That is a very important uh, detail and it and it's something that I actually did not know because one of the topics that I wanted to explore is uh, this small but growing corner of the climate community that suggests offsets are a cop out in some capacity, right? That in some uh-huh. way, if industry can just pay for these offset projects, it doesn't disincentivize them to scale down production or change practices, right? If they know they'll always have a scapegoat of some capacity. So first of all, the really important thing to understand about the climate math is that it's too late to just reduce our way out of this. There are already far too many emissions up in the atmosphere that we've already locked in a significant amount of warming. So we have no choice other than to remove massive amounts of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. That just has to happen. And we waited too long to start this. It's not too late, but we've waited too long to just reduce our way away. So carbon removal is a necessity. There's no question about that. And in fact, we've started seeing like the UN and the IPCC talking about the incorporation of negative emissions, which is what they call carbon removal, into their models in, in terms of avoiding like more than two degrees of warming. So carbon removal has to happen, but is the first part. The second part is that many companies, and depending on what type of industry we're talking about, but many companies are already looking into removing their emissions from the atmosphere because they're being pushed by their consumers, their shareholders, and their employees to do so. 
So our culture has really shifted in this respect. And I think your listeners would probably be pretty familiar with things that have happened in the last year and a half to, uh, or so, which are like the new IPCC report that came out in 2018, the Green New Deal and proposed, similar proposals in the EU, the rise of Extinction Rebellion and Greta Thunberg, and just like a much more grassroots driven movement that is demanding action on climate change. So something has changed. Like this this is not the same as it was like four or five years ago. And so companies like Stripe, like Shopify, like Microsoft uh, and Amazon have all been making enormous financial commitments to removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere because they recognize the role that they played in putting it up there. Now, that's those four companies are certainly not enough and others will follow. So there is a need for balancing how, how does how does policy play a role in this? But in general, the movement is trending in the right direction. So if we circle back to the dynamics of the marketplace, because I think, like you said, there is a key difference or distinct difference in offsets, which we just described, and removal, both of which are important, as you just explained. Can you... Just explain now, I'm a customer uh, or I'm a business and I want to I want to do this. I want to go into the Norway marketplace and I want to find a project that will remove X amount of carbon from the atmosphere. How do you verify that the money collected from me is being funneled to a project respectively and then utilized properly? I think one of the problems with existing carbon markets is that the buyer is forced to select the project. And I think that that introduces a whole lot of complexity because if you're a layperson and you go on to one of our competitors' websites and you see all these different projects about maybe some like reforestation thing in Kenya and clean cook stoves in Latin America and a renewable energy project in Texas, like you don't really know what is the difference between these things. And that's, again, one of the problems with carbon offsets as opposed to removal, because the the key advantage to carbon removal is that we're just saying someone took an action and pulled carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. That's all that should matter. All, all that should matter is that carbon came out of the atmosphere and it verifiably is out and is now staying out. So what we're doing is we're not giving the customer the ability to select a different project because the, what the customer wants is just to know that the carbon came out. So we're just making that as simple as possible. So we work with farmers who have adopted these practices and have already removed carbon. So the buyer, what the buyer is paying for is carbon that has already been verifiably removed. And then when we, when we issue the carbon removal tons to the farmer and then they sell us to the buyers, we record that transaction on the blockchain. So it's public, it's transparent, and you can see everything about the project on the Nori website, where it's like who the farmer was, where their field is located, you can actually see the map, you can see who verified it, you can see the, the specific methodology that Nori has published that the verifier used to, to verify this. All of that information is available. And so that's how like transparency is the key to this whole thing, is people believing that what we say happened is what happened because carbon dioxide is invisible and odorless. You can't, you can't see it. It's not a real tangible thing that we can experience in the same way that we can with like physical objects. Uh So that's, that's how we do that. So I want to go through 
a process live because I, I find this really, really interesting. And I think it'll help paint a picture of how the Nori marketplace works. So I'm on the Nori website and I see here, remove carbon footprint four and I'll select this year. So right now it says 17 tons, you know, one ton equals $15. The subtotal comes to, you know, $255. So as I understand, if I pay $255, this is getting sent in large part to the farmer who has already adopted the multiple different sequestration techniques, different types of regenerative agriculture techniques that you discussed, pulled carbon from the air. So I know that when I'm paying for this, this is an incentive for this farmer to continue implementing the techniques that pull carbon from the air. Did I understand? Is that? That's right. Got it. That's correct. Yep. Got it. So now what you're doing is effectively enabling agriculture across the U.S. and maybe across the globe more broadly, farmers to transition their practices to something that is carbon negative, right? That pulls these emissions from the air and provides an ample incentive to do so over the long term. That, that's right. And there, there's a really interesting thing happening in the agricultural sector right now, which is that big food companies and farmers are all recognizing that they have to switch to these practices. It's not even necessarily a carbon related thing. It's just they have to restore the health and quality of their soil or it's going to become more and more difficult to grow food. This problem of soil erosion, this loss of topsoil, loss of the organic matter in the soil means that their land doesn't, it doesn't retain water better. So they're way more susceptible to damage from flooding. They have to use more and more fertilizer each year in order to grow the same amount of food. So they, they have to adopt these practices. So when we talk to farmers, we don't even really talk about the climate change issue, uh, partly for political reasons, but just because what they're interested in is restoring the quality of their land. And this is a way to finance that. So this is really like the perfect combination of, you know, kind of different groups. Like you have buyers who want to remove their emissions and then you have farmers who want to restore their land. Like they have very different purposes here, but through like commerce, we're able to bring them together and produce this awesome result that is better for everyone. Okay, so this is really one of the first times I've seen uh, incentives aligned so purely between the kind of organizing company, which is yourself, Nori, the farmers, and both the individual consumer, the family, and the business. Uh, what I'd love to do is explore a special story in the kind of Nori storybook. And it's about Trey Hill, who I understand was the first farmer that joined your marketplace. Can you explain like, what is that story and how did you guys, how did your stories cross paths? Well, so Trey Hill is a farmer in Maryland. He runs a farm called Harborview Farms. And his story is really interesting because he was dealing with the fact that in, I think, the Chesapeake Bay, there, there were a lot of environmental problems of runoff from excess nutrients. So that, that really means that like farmers that are using lots of fertilizer, phosphates and nitrates and stuff like that, that, that gets kind of seeps out of the land. And as rains come or irrigation comes, a lot of that water gets washed into the, the bay. And that those nutrients are really 
bad for those local ecosystems because it can cause damage to shellfish or um, to just kind of other wildlife in there. And it makes it a much more toxic environment for them. So it's a bad thing. It's, it's, not, it's not what we want to see. So you have, on the one hand, historically, people who have been maybe environmental activists who were opposed to all of the nutrient runoff coming from these agricultural businesses. And then the farmers who are like, but but we have to grow food. Like you, everyone eats food. We have to do this. And this is the way that it's done. And so Trey started looking into this and wondering like, there, like, there has to be a better way where we can solve both problems simultaneously. So that led him down the path of learning about reducing tillage and cover cropping and so on. And so Trey has been a, an advocate for regenerative practices for a long time. I mean, he's typically like a keynote speaker at no-till conferences that happen throughout the winter each year. So he's well known in this space. So, so Trey is a very, very forward thinking kind of farmer. And, and he saw what we were doing as like the perfect alignment between getting finance for doing these types of activities. And he very much wants to advocate other farmers to adopt these practices as well, so it, it was just a you know perfect match. Uh, Trey's been an amazing partner for us, and we've just been really grateful to get to work with him. Is there a maximum amount of carbon emission removal available per farm? Theoretically, no. yes. That's, that's a good question. So the the kind of rough rule of thumb is that about one acre of land can remove about one ton of CO two per year. That, that varies depending on how degraded your land is at a starting point, as well as like the soil type, where you're located, all that kind of stuff. But that's the kind of rough rule of thumb. The studies that have been done on this have uh, a couple limitations. One is that they've looked at only measuring, I think, 30 centimeters down into the soil. And a lot of people suspect that if we measure down to 45 or 60 centimeters, that we would find even more carbon storage. So in general, the thinking today is that these farms could do this for about 20, maybe 30 years before they sort of reach full saturation, which is a, a long time. And just to give you a sense of scale, so if one acre can do one ton uh, per year, American croplands can sequester about 1 billion, that's billion with a B, tons of CO2 per year. And globally, that number is probably between 5 to 10 billion tons per year. And we could do that for 20 to 30 years. Globally, we emit about 50 billion tons of CO2 equivalent every year. So we're talking about like a very significant portion. Like we could potentially be removing 20% of all emissions just through this one regenerative agriculture method. What happens at 30 years? Well, it's sort of just like diminishing returns where, I mean, it's, it's not like, you know, 30 years hits and then all of a sudden you're done. There's just a theoretical maximum of how much organic matter you can build up into your soil. But we might find that when we get to that mark, that maybe there are improved techniques that continue to sequester even more carbon. So that's just kind of what our, the science tells us today, but hopefully that can keep improving over time. As for the consumer piece, you know, who are you seeing is the typical uh, buyer of the platform? What is the typical demo or user type of the buyer? 
we think about a few different potential markets here. One is the B2B sales. So this is selling to other businesses, corporations that want to negate their emissions. That's a huge, huge opportunity, but it's not enough. The other uh, one that most people would think of is B2C. So selling direct to consumers, people who want to like remove the emissions from the last flight that they took or something like that. I also don't think that that is large enough. So what I'm especially interested in and like the kind of key insight that I had at the very beginning of this was what I really want to do is embed carbon removal into the background of everyday life. So imagine taking an Uber or Lyft ride and at the end of that ride, maybe a sponsor pays for removing the emissions from the car ride that you just took. Maybe you watch a little ad inside the app or something. Or you place an order on Amazon, and in real time, Amazon calculates the emissions required to deliver that to your door, and then they pay for removing that via the Nori API. So what we're trying to do, this like long, the long-term play, is that we're embedding the Nori carbon removal market into all sorts of different software applications so that everyone is just always removing their emissions in real time as they emit them. Paul. Two things. One, that is epic. And I cannot <laughs> wait for that to materialize because that I'm, I'm telling you that that's a big, big deal. The second mm-hmm. piece is so I have I think all founders are alike in some way where we have this notepad of just a laundry list of ideas. Right. And yeah. one of my ideas that is entirely non flushed out was like acorns for climate, right? Edcorns rounds up uh-huh. your spare change and invests on your behalf in the background. And the thinking yep. was like, would consumers be willing to do the same thing? Round up to offset or remove your footprint accordingly. But I think how you're doing it is probably the best way to do it because what what this other approach requires, right? You can you can integrate, you can use Plaid and get access to your bank statements, but you have to make a ton of assumptions. Can you understand the statement descriptors efficiently well? Mm-hmm. All of these things, whereas if you are at the infrastructure layer, like how you're thinking about it, boy, oh boy. That, I mean, that yeah. that is the way to do it. That is the way to do it. Yeah, we sort of think of it like when the iPhone first came out in 2008, or six, seven, whenever that was, there, there was no app store, right? Like you couldn't actually build apps on it for the first couple of years. And then when they finally launched the app store, what they said was, look, we don't know what all of you smart developers are going to do with this, but we know it's going to be something really special and really cool. And we're excited to see what you do. And that's exactly our position on this. Like if we make this uh, really easy to use so that the Nori API and Nori carbon removal can just be dropped into anything, I imagine that lots of different people will come up with lots of different methods for how this gets incorporated into stuff and figuring out who pays for it. So like I, I can imagine uh-huh. like a maybe a mobile game developer builds uh, carbon removal into the, the game itself. And then maybe for every in-app payment, maybe a portion of that goes towards removing actual carbon from the air or imagine using a navigation app while you're driving and that app's keeping track of like how far you've driven and your emissions from that and then allows you to easily remove it 
We've even thought about a like even like a credit card type thing. And there are others who have done something like this where it's actually pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. Like, or actually, let me back up. One of the uh, complications when it comes to calculating carbon emissions is that it's really difficult for certain types of activities. Like if you go buy a, let's say a package of paper towels at the grocery store, it is very difficult to know what were the emissions required to get that product from manufacturer all the way to your home. So an, uh, mm-hmm. another way to do it might be to look at all of the total emissions happening within a particular jurisdiction or region, and then uh, look at the total spending in that region and then calculate out what is the average emission per dollar spent. And it's actually mm-hmm. not very much. And so you could just automatically bake it into different financial apps or into a credit card. So like I, I've done the back of the envelope math on U.S. emissions. So when you take U, total U.S. emissions mm-hmm. and total U.S. consumer spending and you divide them out and you multiply that by like $15 per ton to remove, it's less than a fifth of a penny per dollar in order to remove all of your emissions just from every dollar that you spend. So there are lots of different ways that people could think about doing this. And we're just making the tools so that entrepreneurs and others can figure out how to do this. We're making a platform that can super scale. I had Jonathan Cedar on, who's co-founder of Climate Uh Neutral with Peter Daring. And part of the episode, we talked about ways to calculate footprint. You know, there's top down, there's bottoms up. But if, man, I, I... there's a there's a lot of opportunity for you guys to to collaborate there, but here's here's where I want to stick my flag into the ground, and I'm going to make a prediction about the future of Nori. My prediction is that either a Nori grows to be one of the next kind of behemoth fintech companies of the world, like among the ranks of Plaid, Stripe, the list mm-hmm. goes on, but. This is my estimation, Paul. And you hear to hear first. I'm putting it on the record. I bet that Stripe acquires Nori. And my thinking here is that Stripe is now powering a meaningful percentage of mobile and internet commerce. Right? Mm-hmm. And there's obviously other players, but there I I know, like you just got what like we noted previous uh, earlier in the interview, they've been making kind of calculated efforts to offset their own footprint to address it. They have, I believe they have a whole team that is focused on building products in this category, but man, oh man, like if, if they could, if, if y'all can join forces, <laughs> oh, Hey, I, 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 all I'm saying is if this happens, I will be referencing this exact timestamp uh-huh. in the episode and saying how freaking yeah, it's, man. It, it's funny um, you say that because like in my pitch deck for investors, I describe Nori as Stripe for carbon removal. And it's crazy too because today it doesn't look no, like that. No, not at all. But what you're doing today is required to get That's there. right. You can't do it without doing what you're doing yeah. now. Man, this is a this is a move. Yeah, shot. well, I mean, l- look at awesome. like look at Stripe's story. It's a perfect example. So, I, I don't know if you've ever tried like absent something like Stripe or one of their competitors to implement credit card uh-huh. processing into something, but I, I've done that and it is the biggest pain 
because there are so many different weird middlemen that you have to work with. There's like the the gateway, the payment processor, there's the bank that sits behind it. And you have to have Mm -hmm. this relationship between all of them. They all charge transaction fees. So it can get kind of expensive. And the software itself is just really not easy to use. And then Stripe came along like in 2009 or 2010 or something and just said, you know what? Screw all that. Here are two lines of code. Drop this in. Boom. You've got credit card payments. We've handled everything in the background. Mm -hmm. And that revolutionized e-commerce. And we're doing the exact same thing, saying like, forget having to, you know, there are some big businesses that have been doing carbon offsets for a long, long time. And they have a whole staff of of people and they might spend months, maybe six to 12 months even doing diligence on a carbon offset project. And we're saying like, forget that. Like most businesses cannot afford that. Having a team of people who are spending that much time just like doing their own diligence, that needs to be simplified and commoditized. So same sort of thing. Like here are a couple lines of code, drop us into what you're doing. And then just start having verified carbon removal. And we, we provide all the transparency. Like you can trace it all the way back and see exactly what happened, but you don't need to do that work. Let us do that for you. Mm-hmm. Question for you. Let's say Patrick comes knocking on the door. You get, you get an email in your inbox saying, you know, can we buy Nori? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, how are you thinking about the future of Nori? Is this something that you want to grow into your own kind of independent behemoth? Do you think in order to get there, it's really interesting to explore partnerships like that of Stripe or maybe Shopify or, you know, companion of that nature? Kind of what are you thinking about the the future of, of Nori here? You know, do you know how Elon Musk talks about SpaceX and like the reasons why oh, SpaceX yeah. is still private and he hasn't taken that public? Well, aside from all uh-huh. of the nonsense that goes on with Tesla, the the big reason is because SpaceX's mission is to develop a sustainable colony of humans on Mars. And there are a whole bunch of steps between where they are now and completing that objective. And that's going to take a very long time. And just the nature of like publicly traded businesses and the nature of the way investors want to see their returns would make that really challenging to do. So they've stayed private because they they want to see that mission through. Nori thinks about this the same way. Like reversing climate change is a long-term effort. It's going to take decades. I I do absolutely believe that we can fully solve this in this century, but it's going to take a long time to do it. And I don't want uh, mission creep to become a problem. I don't want the, just like the the daily challenges dealing with certain types of investment structures or publicly traded companies to get in the way. So Nori's intention Mm -hmm. is to remain independent because we... Also, because independence is really valuable in market making. So, for instance, we've been asked like if we would take investment, equity investment from agricultural companies. And the answer is no, because we don't want to become an arm of one company that then prevents others from participating in the market because of like competition and that sort of thing. So it's important to us that we maintain our market independence. We want to like we want to be the long-term player who acts as the financial hub. And we're far more interested in developing partnerships with the types of companies that you're mentioning um, so that carbon removal mm-hmm. can be integrated into the things that they do. I think this is a, a good opportunity to segue to a really interesting moment that hit news recently. It was Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, wrote this really, really compelling and uh, profound letter about the future of BlackRock and how sustainability would be baked into 
their entire investment thesis and operation. So it it's I think a natural piggyback on what you just said, right? You, you don't want to, you're you're cautious about taking investment from an agricultural company because longer term it might compromise your ability to realize your mission. Yeah. And in BlackRock's notice, I mean, they are designed to maximize profit, but they believe that climate change is an inherent risk to executing against that mission, right? That fiduciary responsibility. So I just wanted to pass the torch to you. Like, how significant is the BlackRock letter? Well, I so it, he's written similar stuff in years past, and he does this annually, publish this letter. It's, I don't think it's as significant as recent announcements, like, by Microsoft and Stripe are. And the reason for that is that black, most of BlackRock's assets are held in index funds, not in direct companies. So there's like an abstracted layer between them and the companies they invest in. But it, mm-hmm. it's a general just, it's, it's another data point in the trend of the fact that business is recognizing that everyone is demanding that they take care of their environmental footprint. And, and that's just like, that's just the right way to think about it because we're, we're all consumers and and some of us run businesses too. And so the this like you can't really decouple the consumer action from the business action. So I I personally do not agree with the people who are who look at like big oil and gas as the enemy. I think that they can be part of the solution as well because we you know they give us a product that we demand frankly i mean we still fly we drive cars we power our homes and businesses and so on off of that that energy and these companies need to be part of the solution and they're recognizing now that the consumers and the shareholders and the employees are demanding that they do so so you know setting aside discussions mm-hmm. of like policies and how they influence that and all, and all of that i think that this is just it's a good sign that the trend is heading in the right direction and there are many other signs like that. I feel quite confident that, I mean, it also bodes well for Nori because it shows that our timing is really perfect. Like we are, we are getting going at just the right moment when all of these uh, different businesses are waking up and realizing that they need to start removing their carbon emissions and we are ready to go for them. It, you brought up Microsoft as well. You know, for, for anyone listening, if you didn't see, Microsoft uh, made this major announcement that they want to go carbon negative by 2030. And a key piece of this goal is carbon removal, right? Of which they're committing, I think, what, a billion dollars to new technologies and development to enable this. So question for you, does, I guess, one, are are you in conversations with Microsoft? And I guess, where does Nori kind of fit that goal? And beyond Nori, are there other kind of key pieces of technology that will be required for Microsoft to, you know, check that goal off and help them realize it? Well, you know, the the thing that's like most exciting to me is not just that they, they want to go carbon negative by 2030, but that they actually want to remove all of their emissions back to 1975 by the year 2050. Wow. So like they're, they're recognizing, look, since our existence, we have uh, had this much impact and we want to clean that up. It's, like one of the things that we say is we think of carbon emissions like a garbage problem. Like we've been producing all this garbage and we've been throwing it out on the street for over 120, 30 years. And we've not been collecting that garbage. And so Microsoft is saying, 
look, we've got this huge pile of garbage outside our front door. We're going to pick up all of that. We're going to dispose of it responsibly. We're going to recycle what we can and store the rest. And that is the exact right way to think about it. And I am so thrilled that they made that announcement. And I really look forward to other companies following suit because Microsoft is a huge leader. If they're not today, they they have been recently the most valuable company in the world. So this is a, a super big deal. And of course, carbon removal has to be a part of them achieving that objective. So interesting, I would say minor plot twist, but kind of key point that I read today, actually. So Emily Atkin, she writes the climate newsletter, Heated. Yeah, yeah. She published her letter today. And I don't know if you saw, but she pointed out that Microsoft has kind of in parallel to this announcement been donating to the campaigns of legislators that are known for contributing to the climate crisis at large. Uh What's kind of, what's your take on that? Well, I mean, all these big businesses donate to everyone. So I don't really read a whole lot into it. I I, I do get that newsletter too. I did also read it this morning. I, I don't know. I, I don't, I frankly don't think it's that big of a deal. Like, look, look at the amount of money that, like, that they're spending. Like, she she was making an issue of the fact that they spend the maximum on, like, Mitch McConnell's re-election campaign, which is $10,000. Well, they just committed $1 billion with a B to carbon negativity. I think that that speaks mm-hmm. volumes. So you think it's more so just, hey, we got we got to play the game. We got to make sure, you know, yeah, that's how powerful that's how- people are happy. Yeah. That's how all these companies yeah. do it. Like you can look at them and see that they donate to everyone. It's not they like they don't pick sides in this. Mm-hmm. So I guess this is also a pretty good opportunity to segue to uh, one of your uh, older blog posts. Right back in 2018, you wrote a piece called "Washington Failed to Pass Carbon Legislation Again." It's time to focus on carbon removal. Mm-hmm. So, if you were advising a new president on climate policy after this new election, what would be the first piece of legislation you advocate for and why? The first thing I would do would be to increase funding that's going to the U.S. Department of Agriculture for research into measurement and quantification and um, support of regenerative agriculture. Because again, this like the, the U.S. produces a significant amount of agriculture and food for the world. And so we have the opportunity here to play a very leading role in the world when it comes to carbon removal. And just by the nature of the way that these tools for measurement and quantification work, like just getting more funding makes a significant difference. So that would be step number one. I would say step number two would be the most effective policy approach for uh, dealing with climate change would be to require that the producers of the precursor content that emits greenhouse gases into the atmosphere require them to reduce the amount of carbon that comes from their product. So if you think of like oil and gas, for instance, that would be saying, look, you need to get the carbon out of your product. I don't care as a government. I don't care how you do it. You can use whatever processes you need, but you need to hit certain targets by certain dates and you need to keep removing it until we're fully decarbonized. And the reason that I would advocate for a policy like that is because that has worked over and over and over again when we've dealt with other pollutant problems. So think of getting lead out of gasoline in the 70s and 80s. Think of the acid rain problem. Think of the ozone problem problem and the chlorofluorocarbons that had to be removed from refrigerants. 
in each case, the policies that worked were when we put out mandates that said, you have to reduce the amount of this pollutant in your precursor product by X percent every year for the next number of years. So just in the same breath, is there a current presidential candidate who you feel is best suited to carry out a productive climate agenda? Ooh. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> this is not an endorsement of anyone, but it, during the debates, I have heard from Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden, especially, that they both are quite interested in supporting farmers sequestering carbon in their soils. I've heard Biden uh, specifically talk about the need for private voluntary markets for carbon drawdown. Um, so th those have been the most related to the types of things that we're working on. Got it. What other companies in your peer group or kind of just across industry at large are working on solving climate, you think, in a very meaningful way? You know, if you had to kind of put your, all the stakes are all kind of your money and one other company or one other kind of piece of technology, who would it be or what would it be and why? It's a, well, you know, the interesting thing from our, our Techstars cohort, that it was the Techstars Sustainability 2019 program that was out of Denver. And uh, more than half of the companies, so there were 10 companies, more than half of them were related to water and water management issues and stormwater and other things like that. And I've just never really been in that sector and didn't really know like the scale of the issues that they're solving. And so some of those companies that, that have been a, approaching those issues are, are really cool. So I, water is interesting. There, there was a, one of the other companies in our cohort, this company called Mobius, and Mobius's business model is focusing on the, the plastic liners used for like plant products. And so like, think if you go to a nursery and you, you buy like a starter plant, you want to take that home, like that, that black liner that is in there that can't be recycled because most recycling facilities cannot recycle black plastic. Mm -hmm. And they're replacing that with a, like a, effectively a bioplastic like that's such a cool business model and the scale of the market that they're going after is orders of magnitude bigger than i thought it would be so that's just a really cool way to do it and i i have every expectation that they're going to be a very successful business that's awesome paul before we part ways i, I just want to roll the red carpet are there any final call to actions hiring needs anything that you think our listeners can do to help the floor is yours. Well, I would say like start removing your own emissions. We make it really simple to figure out how many you are, just like approximate it. Like I, I generally think that carbon calculators overdo things and try to get way too specific on it. Like if you are looking at your annual emissions for the year and the average American removes 17 tons, I don't know, just remove 20. Like you, you've emitted so much more of that than that in your lifetime. So just like use a nice round number. So I would say go to nori.com and remove your emissions from the last month or the last year and and then go from there and share that with people and share that especially with business owners, business owners who are conscious of the fact that in order to provide their service or their product that they're emitting CO2 in the air and they want to do something about it because that's that's how the that's where the scale exists today. Love it. Paul Gamble, founder and CEO of Nori, N-O-R-I.com. Paul, this was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, can I actually pitch one more thing? Oh, yes, absolutely. 
Okay, so since this is on a podcast, like we also have a podcast that I would love to share with your listeners. It's called Reversing Climate Change. We have another one called Carbon Removal Newsroom, but it's a similar length, similar kind of format where we're talking with people in this space. So I would encourage you to go check it out. You can find all of that at nori.com. And I can attest as well, uh, you actually sent me your, your kind of top three favorites, which I thoroughly enjoyed. But yes, everyone check it out. And again, Paul, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Peter. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing and writing us a review. Also, if you have any recommendations about a founder or a company that you'd like to see on the show, let us know. Message us on social at In Good Hands. Also, special shout out to Dan Mahoney, who produced this week's episode, and Eddie Knuckles, our music director. I'm your host, Peter Levin. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Peter A. Levin. And that's it. Looking forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.